We talk a lot about winning people and not just arguments in our conversations about abortion, but what does that look like? Well, today we are joined by Josh Brom, president of the Equal Rights Institute, to take a deep dive into what it looks like to build connection and rapport while we work to change minds and save lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the program. And with me again is my good friend, my wonderful co-host, a mentor to many in the pro-life movement. And uh, one of the, I mean, one of the reasons that you come on this show, Cameron Cote. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. Your your intros are getting more and more obnoxious. I'm going to have to cut you off at some point here. I Pleasure <laughs> to be back. Pleasure to, if I can be helpful to anyone listening, then it is my honor. Um, I hope that it is helpful and I hope that it's helping you have conversations wherever you're at, whatever kind of sphere of influence you're working in. Um, and I hope that we can continue that train today as we, we have on a super cool guest we're going to dive into in just a moment. Um, but I'm doing well. We haven't asked you. How are you doing, Peter? Oh, I'm also doing well. I, I don't know when this is exactly going to be published, but we are recording it shortly after the Christmas break, uh, a week and a half or so after that. I had a good Christmas break, relaxed, relaxing time, and I'm looking forward to uh, the plans and the projects and the work that we have here in 2022, sir. I know you are as well. Before we get into our conversation, two things. If you are new to the program, we are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children here in Canada. And this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to have those conversations that change minds, to save lives, and to transform our culture. And so this episode is going to dive into that, but a lot of our other episodes do as well, where we share apologetics training, where we talk about specific justifications for abortion that we hear on the streets and navigate our way through them. Some of the ins and outs, what are people, what people are getting at and the best way that we can respond to those. We have an episode called Don't Use These Pro-Life Arguments as well, um, which highlights some pro-life arguments that pro-lifers use. And, and we argue that they should not be used. And uh, you can learn more about that there. So check out our other episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and share this content with your friends. One more thing, Cam, we have a quarterly round table coming up. Could you briefly touch on that? Yeah. So what are these quarterly roundtables? We've talked about them for a long time. Um, it's gotten kicked down the field a few times. This is something that is geared specifically towards our Patreon supporters. We're going to bring a couple people on to do an open kind of Q&A sort of thing and then a closed Q&A sort of thing. And what this is going to look like is... Um, Again, we don't know exactly when this is going to get posted, but probably in the next week or so. On January, Friday, January 28th, we are going to have Josh Brom, Mark Harrington, Peter, yourself, and I doing a roundtable where you're going to have the opportunity, if you're one of our Patreon supporters, one of the amazing people who makes this show possible, to basically jump into a video call with the four of us and ask us your questions. If you want to ask Josh Brom about relational ministry as we're diving into today, if you want to ask Mark Harrington about what Created Equal is doing down in the States, if you want to ask Peter or I anything about the podcast, anything about apologetics, this is your opportunity to have like 
as close to face-to-face time as possible. This isn't a conference of 5,000 people that you're submitting questions online or anything like that. This is like you and a handful of other people who are going to be able to ask whatever questions you have to the four of us. Um, as I mentioned, myself, Peter, you, um, Mark Harrington from Created Equal, the executive director down there, and Josh Brom, our guest today, the president of Equal Rights Institute. That's super excited. If you're not a member of our Patreon team, please check out patreon.com slash guys. We'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the episode um, about how you can sign up and what are the perks of that. Um, but yeah, check it out couple of weeks from time of recording we're going to be doing this sweet round table uh with josh i love it sir our guest today as we mentioned off the top is josh brahm the president of the equal rights institute an organization that trains pro-life advocates to think clearly to reason honestly and argue persuasively josh has publicly debated leaders from planned parenthood the national abortion rights action league Georgians for Choice, and one of the leading abortion facilities in Atlanta. Josh and the Equal Rights Institute, or ERI, also focus on bringing relational apologetics to the pro-life movement. Josh is formerly the host of a globally heard podcast turned radio TV show, Life Report, and he now hosts the Equipped for Life podcast. He also uh, uh, writes a lot, written dozens of articles for LifeNews.com and the Equal Rights Institute blog, which you can find at equalrightsinstitute.com. Cam, there are some phrases that to me are tongue twisters, and that seems to be one the more I say it. Anyway, here's our conversation with Josh Brom. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast today. It is so good to be on with you. It's good to meet you and and just hang out with with other pro-lifers who also do podcasts. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, likewise, sir. Uh, one of the things we like to do when we when we start off with uh, guests, we want to know a little bit about your story. You've been in the pro-life movement for quite some time, from my understanding. You joined the movement straight out of high school, yeah. um, so you've been doing this as a career. So. Could you share with us a little bit about your story, perhaps your conviction in joining the movement and and your thought process and and why you decided to join the pro-life movement as a full-time activist? Yeah, absolutely. And and my story is a bit weird in the sense that I knew that I wanted to be a pro-life speaker when I was 11 years old. So what happened, so I was a homeschool kid, which is why I'm so weird, right? And so I was a homeschool kid. We went to a really pro-life church, like this was a church, like they were involved in the rescue movement and everything. And, um, and so when I was 11, my dad took me with a group of like three or four other guys from our church, uh, in downtown Sacramento to go and, and just pray outside of, a, of an abortion clinic. Now, no one had told me what abortion was ahead of time. No one had given, I didn't even have to talk yet. I had like no idea what was going on. I was just so clueless. And, and so now I'm like, we're in front of this ugly building in downtown Sac. There's like a park across from us. And it's just weird. And I'm just like, I don't understand what people are praying about. Everything feels kind of ominous, but I don't know why. And a group across the street had brought some graphic signs. And so, and I wasn't traumatized. Like, I don't like the whole argument against graphic signs, but like, all these kids are getting traumatized. I wasn't traumatized. I was confused. I didn't understand. I wasn't processing what I was seeing, which I think is super common if if kids see this. And so, but it was enough, you know, like I asked, I think like on the way home or something like, I don't understand what this was, like what, what, what was this? And so my parents told me what abortion was that day. And I remember going through like the series of different emotions. Like I started with surprise because 
my family was, it was, I'm sorry, my church was not just super pro-life or super pro-family. Like people, had, it was Protestant, but like big families. People had sometimes eight, nine, 10 kids and it wasn't like super weird. It was very conservative. And so just the idea that anyone would want to have an abortion, much less it be legal, was just shocking to me. It was like my cultural bubble got pierced for the first time. Like I was really confronting like a real serious sin for the first time. And then I felt super sad. And then this kind of growing sense, I think this is like the homeschool kid in me, this growing sense of like, I guess I'm going to have to stop that when I grow up. You know, the overzealous, I'm going to go be William Wilberforce, like that thing. And, uh, and so I read, so Frank Beckwith uh, had put out his first book on abortion, um, Politically Correct Death. And so I read that, didn't understand half of it, but I read it. Um, and then we had early Scott Klusendorf tapes. Um, back before, I think he wasn't even at Stand to Reason yet. I don't even know if he was at CBR yet, but, um, but either way, he was speaking at Hume Lake and it was just kind of that, like that pro-life apologetics where it's like, it's meant to reach young people. And he was, you know, I kind of felt like he was bringing apologetics to the pro-life movement and I loved it. And I listened to those tapes over and over and over. I memorized his arguments. I memorized his jokes, you know, it was, it was like, um, later on, it would be like me and Steve Wagner and Stephanie Gray. Like we all kind of call, call ourselves the clones, right? We were like, we were the Scott clones. And, um, and that's how it started. So I ended up, uh, I'm, when I'm 18, then I ended up involved in the teens for life group. Um, and then we moved across the country. Um, and all I knew is I wanted to start a new teens for life group. And so I did that. I ran that for a few years and then I got hired by a couple of different pro-life groups. Scott was my mentor for a long time. Still love Scott. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of how all of it started. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love, I mean, big shout out to homeschooling. Anyone who's thinking about homeschooling, yeah. this is a, this is an advertisement for homeschooling. Actually. This is right. Um, I, I got to ask. And, and so I, I was not homeschooled when I was going through education and whatnot. And when I started in the pro-life movement, my parents were totally like, okay, whatever. He's got like one year mission work and then he's going to get a normal job sort of right, thing. Right. What, was that similar for you or were your parents like gung ho of like, oh man, our kid That's is going to be that question. guy that turns into the William Wilberforce. I've never been asked that. Um, okay, so I know, so I knew they, so I, I remember before we, so we, so my, we moved to Atlanta from Sacramento because of my dad's job. Um, like basically the whole company was getting like, everyone was either getting fired or moved to the one headquarters in Atlanta. So my dad was one of the few that didn't get fired, but got the option to move. And th so we knew six months before we moved that we were going to move. And it was a little bit after that six months that I joined this Teens for Life group. So I remember my mom thinking that was pretty weird and maybe a bad idea. Because like, do you like you're already going to be leaving all of your friends you've known like all of your life? Do you really want to build like new friendships and stuff like that right before we know we're going to move? And I just felt this really strong kind of like I just feel like I'm supposed to be here. Um, and she was like, okay, and thankfully kind of let me let, let let me do that. And then we had this kind of very powerful experience like accidentally starting another group in another city um it was like what well, we weren't even there to do but like it just happened in like two days like this group was like we're going to start a teams for life so i think there's like maybe god helping me see you could start a new one um like this is possible you don't have to just join one um and so i think they knew that i was really sad when we moved there's a really kind of depressing time for me and i had this one thing that i latched onto. you know i called like 50 youth pastors from our brand new phone book from my empty bedroom, just like trying to find interest in the teens for life thing that I wanted to start. And so I don't know, I don't think they knew where it would go. So like kind of my plan had always been to be a professional musician. 
Um, I was really musical from a really young age um, and, and ultimately ended up turning like I, I got sent a contract from like a Nashville person to be a full time music person. And, and just at that point, I was far enough into the pro-life thing. I was like, I, I would have to choose to not do pro-life work at that point. And I cared more about doing pro-life work. Um, my parents had given me the sense of like, try to have an eternal impact if you can. Um, and so I don't think there was a, I, they were definitely very pro like gap year, even multiple gap years. So I did not go straight into school because I didn't know what I wanted to do as far as career. I just knew I was really passionate about abortion. And so I was like, I'm going to start the students for life. And they saw it as like this missional gap year. And I think Boy, I don't remember. I don't. I certainly don't think they were like trying to recommend me not do it because after a year or two of that, I got offered a job with like an actual salary, a very tiny salary, but still a salary um, at Georgia Right to Life. And so I think by that point, it's kind of like cool. You know, it was you know, I resigned from Great Harvest Bread Company and went and actually you know and started doing like a full time kind of an office job. So I think they were. I think they were. They were really supportive. They've certainly been super supportive of, of ERI. Like they're so proud of me, and there's really helpful to me. Like, you know, my, my dad died a couple of years ago from cancer. And w one of the nice things was that I never had to wonder like some like adult kids wonder after the parent dies, like, was he proud of me? Like my dad one time said this thing of like, and he quoted, he was like quoting that Bible verse. It's like, try to have like arrows, you know, you know, for the kingdom. And he's like, I've got a couple of cruise missiles, like that kind of thing for the kingdom. So like he loved what we did at ERI and they still, you know, love Scott Klusendorf and stuff like that. So it, it was definitely supportive. That's a really long way of saying they were supportive. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. So ERI is the Equal, Equal Rights Institute, which is the organization you work for now. One more question um, before we dive into uh, you sort of starting that organization and, and working in it now and some of the projects that you do. Do you have some memorable moments of those first few years? I, I think of my first few years in the movement, Cam, maybe you as well. You're like on a, a sort of like a zealous high. You're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to go out there. And sometimes just some, I don't know, you, you can look back years yeah. later and be like, wow, that was that was crazy that we did that. Or this was a wild experience. Do you have any of those sort of memorable moments or experiences that you could share with us? Yeah, man, you guys are really good interviewers uh, that you're asking. Like, you're, you're the only, like, I feel like I always get asked the same questions when I do things like this and you're asking different questions. This is good. You're, you're making me dig Love deep. My favorite memory for the, from the first couple of years was actually getting to do a speech in front of Scott Klusendorf. Um, somehow he found out that I was speaking at this like library thing. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. It was like 40 or 50 people are speaking about stem cell research. And, um, and it was not that far from where he lived and he, he came. So that was like, it's like a, being a garage band playing for Metallica is just like in the audience. Like, it was just like, it was in, surreal and, and. Um, it was a really kind thing that he did that and meant a lot. Um, and his, I, you know, I certainly, you know, him and Steve Wagner were both kind of my biggest influences. Um, a lot of who I am is because of those, those two guys. And, and, um, so certainly in doing outreach with justice for all for the first time was, was I think really significant for me. So, you know, I went, uh, it was JFA had just begun. So it's David Lee and Steve Wagner. And I don't even know if they had any other staff. I think Tammy was there, but like, it was very small. They were, their seminar was very kind of young. A lot of it was pretty straight up Scott Klusendorf stuff. And so I went and, and I, I only went, I, I went as this arrogant jerk apologist, basically. Like, I was like, I don't have anything to learn from these guys. I'm so smart. You know, like that kind of thing. But you had to go to go to the outreach. I wanted to do the outreach. And so I spent the first half of that just being like, I'm not learning a thing. I know Scott Klusendorf stuff front and back. And then they had the question of rape section. 
where they lined all the men up against the wall and had all these female either students or like volunteers basically yell at us for a while and we're supposed to respond and i was like i still i think i'm going to do really well and so I, I i don't remember what i did i was probably like well why should we you know punish the child for his father's crimes or like something you know kind of cliche like that and i remember the woman in front of me being like i don't feel like you actually care <laughs> and I, I don't i'm not getting like I, you're failing basically and i very quickly as they like kind of shared what they share about that topic, which they were so good at. Um, a lot of the stuff that we say about question of rape is is based, you know, pretty closely on, on, on what they have done. I can, went very quickly from, I'm this arrogant, I'm the expert in the room to, I know nothing. I need to learn everything I can from these people. And after the event, I followed Steve around like a puppy dog as they're like tearing down, like it was so annoying. David Lee had this like migraine. He's like dying. And I'm just like, I'm asking question after question after question of everything I could ask. And so like th those were, I think a couple of the most probably formative moments for me. Love it. That that's so cool. And, and I can definitely connect with that, that um, feeling of having one of your mentors, um, be in the audience. I remember the first time I presented to Stephanie Gray Connors, who was already oh, wow. yeah. ran, ran the internship. And, and during the internship, so funny story that I've shared a few times is that I, I was preparing a strategy presentation for CCBR and, and we did this whole social reform and then application to what CCBR is doing. And I wanted to be perfect in front of Stephanie because she was mm -hmm. the best speaker that I've ever heard. And I give half of my speech, I give the whole social reform bit, and that's the only bit that I've practiced. I, I practiced that like a million times in the three weeks leading up. I didn't practice anything else. And I hit uh -huh. the end of that part, and I was just like, I have no idea what else to say. And I just sat oh, down, no. and Stephanie was just like, is this a joke? And then <laughs> oh, after no. that, I was so embarrassed anytime Stephanie was ever in the room for me presenting. And I remember the first time I gave a, a public presentation that I didn't know Stephanie was going to be at. I saw her sneak into the back of the room and I just like beads of sweat start pouring down my face. And then she was the one that started the standing ovation afterwards. And the Aww. sweat turned into just like tears of joy. And definitely um, it's so cool to have your mentors um, yeah. there with you. And, and we've talked about this on the program before about um, find a mentor, find multiple mentors in the pro-life movement, be that annoying person, just like Josh yep. said, you, you were, be that person that follows that person around at the end of the conference, the end of the church talk, whatever it is. Um, but let's start diving in, um, Josh, into ERI and, and the application. I, I want to dive deep into this relational ministry and building rapport and whatnot. But first, give us a little bit of an outlook as to why you started Equal Rights Institute and how they fit into the ecosystem of the American and global pro-life movement. What differentiates and what is the kind of calling card of ERI? Ecosystem is a really good word for it. <laughs> That's really well put. Um, we started ERI because I knew for a while I wanted to have a national impact on the movement as a whole. You know, I was working at like functionally a county right to life group and running a like, you know, one of the first pro-life podcasts from it. And so I was starting to get to do speaking in other places. And I just, I cared a lot about, about the whole movement getting better and not just the people in Fresno, California. Um, and then I, you know, I had some really powerful experiences, with, you know, working with Justice for All. Um, you know, over a couple of years, we're working on like, you know, a new response to bodily rights arguments. And then we kind of stumbled upon this person's argument that seemed to be working a lot better on the ground than anything we tried before. And, and so just like thinking about like, oh my gosh, like what if we could improve the way that people dialogue about abortion. And I ended up, uh, you know, having this kind of week where I was planning on trying to write a practical dialogue to tips book with my brother, Tim. 
And we didn't really work on the book for long in a few hours because we kind of accidentally started thinking about like, what if we started a pro-life organization and like, what would that look like? And what does the pro-life movement need? And so we wanted to bring to the movement um, innovation, um, like the kind of the willingness to like, let's think outside the box, let's try different things, let's fail at outreach, let's try things or end up not working. But given that it seemed obvious to us that like truth doesn't change, the truth is objective, but culture does which means that the techniques, the strategies, the tactics, the questions, even the arguments that persuade like Gen Z is sometimes very different than Gen X. And we just always wanted to be at the cutting edge of that, of just trying to figure out what is working right now and then tell that to as many people as we can and try to have like that rising tide kind of raises all ships. And so we had this really kind of like innovation, want to be willing to like pivot really fast. Like if we figure out something new that's working, we want to be able to change tomorrow's seminar and be good enough at speaking and everything to just be able to do that and not have a bunch of red tape. And we got to get the board to agree to let us like teach this new thing or whatever. So we're not like just be, you know, kind of cutting edge. We wanted to be using, you know, video online courses. I wanted scalable things. So I was paying a lot of attention to like outside the pro-life movement, um, you know, kind of, you know, thought leaders and, you know, bloggers, people like Michael Hyatt and trying to like, like what if like some of that happened in the pro-life movement got me really excited. And so um, you know, we care a lot about, about outreach, but unlike, you know, groups like CCBR and JFA, like we're not doing outreach all the time. We do outreach like several times a, a semester at best. And that's like that, that's our lab. We're just trying a bunch of things. I've got a whole Google doc, a secret Google doc of things that I want to try more or haven't tried yet. And I'm like, I think that might work really well. And I'm reviewing that on my way into an outreach. So I'm going to try a bunch of things. And then hopefully we learn some stuff that we can try to help people, um, with. And so there's kind of, on one end, we care a lot about philosophy and trying to help like the pro-life movement go up a rung on the intellectual ladder. Like, like let's take smart pro-choice arguments more seriously and avoid some of the logical fallacies that pro-life people make a lot, which drives me insane. And on the other side, I, and this feels like you wouldn't do both things, but I care a lot about the relational side of this of what would, like, there are a lot of really smart pro-lifers that are using great arguments, but they come across like jerks, and so they don't end up persuading the person. It's just like, man, if we could just, like, change your style. Like, I know you actually care about survivors of rape, but you don't sound like you do. And so let me help you not to fake compassion, but, like, do a better job of showing the genuine compassion that you have. And so thinking about relational apologetics, like, what would it look like if you're friends with a pro-choice person for a few years? Having a lot of conversations, because for a lot of people, that's what it's going to take for them to change their mind anyway. It's not going to be one conversation with even the best apologists, even if Stephanie Gray were talking to them. Like, it's not going to be one conversation. They need more than that. And so we're trying to bring kind of both of those pieces um, more to the forefront of the movement. Love it. And we're going to dive into that in just a moment. Peter, I know that you want to ask, especially about the relational apologetics. Josh, a really weird one from left field again. I, I got to ask. So I, I love the cutting edge work that ERI is doing. How many different versions of your apologetics PowerPoint do you have? You're constantly updating. Oh my updating. gosh! Like, like over under. Give me, give me an estimate. Is it more than a hundred? More than a thousand? Like you're updating it every time. How many different versions have you made since you started ERI? I mean, I don't know if I've ever used the same one twice. Like, there's probably always little changes, but they're not all. Like, I don't. I also don't want to exaggerate. It's not like they're always significant changes. So, like my dialogue tips. Like, I've got so many versions of dialogue tips, and it has a lot of times to do with like. How much time do I have and which ones do I really want to hit? So like I've got like four I will always hit. And then there's like a bunch of others that I, you know, I might kind of switch out or whatever. But um, 
Um, and I recently had our, our slideshows completely redesigned because a graphic designer was in the audience and she was like, I love your material, but your slides suck. And I was like, hey, those slides are the best that I can do. <laughs> so see, I, I paid her to like redo all of them and now they actually look nice. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's always changing because I feel like we learn every single time we do a speech or especially a seminar. We're trying to figure out like, what are the things that we can add? What can we take away? I think I think I'm probably a lot like you in the sense of like they're prop. I don't know how many different versions, but I'm always just looking for the latest version. And sometimes, you know, we need to get better at our organ our file organization because it's sometimes a little harder than it should be. <laughs> All right. So in terms of the relational apologetics, I love this because I think a lot of pro life apolog apologists have the sort of experience that you did in that training session where you're like, I know this. And then you, you get confronted with someone who doesn't just have an intellectual, um, you know, support of abortion, but very much an emotional one. There's, there's yeah. a lot going on perhaps in their emotions, their experience and all of that. And that's one of the things that we try to do on the streets. Now your focus is, um, sort of the long-term ones we at CC long-term conversations. We at CCBR where we meet people at a high school, yeah. we talk to them for five minutes, then we're gone. And these are, these are tactics as well that we do try to incorporate into totally. the conversations is, is this sort of relational element, which is fantastic. Now, one of the things you said, and uh, I'd love to love to hear your thoughts. You talked about some of the fallacies that pro-lifers make in arguments. You love philosophy yep. and some, some pro-lifers you say do that pretty well. Give me a, a bit of an idea before we get into some of the um, sort of what it looks like in practice to, to have these conversations, to be relational as you're, as you're talking about, to, to talk about the case of rape and other challenges in a way that shows that you actually are concerned about the person and not just winning the argument. Share with us a little bit about um, what are like one or two or three of these bad arguments that you think pro-lifers, pro like these are arguments that you really should stop using and this is why. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I've got a speech people can find on YouTube of, of like a, a, a seven or eight or nine of them. But like there's definitely one that is the worst, like by far of all of them is like this is like the only one I can be like, never, ever, 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 ever use this argument as opposed to like this one might work with this particular person, but not but like maybe like have it on the down on the prayer list. But the worst one, like we call it the Beethoven argument. Um, and so it's like, you know, it's that whole, like, think of how many Beethovens or Hans Zimmers or cancer curers or whatever were, were aborted. Um, because it's problematic on like multiple levels. One, that works both sides of the coin. We've also aborted future rapists and serial killers and things like that. If you want to go that direction. And in the end, it's not convincing to most pro-choice people because most pro-choice people see through it. But also it's fallacious in the sense that you're actually having to import the pro-choice worldview to even make this argument. Because, you know, to go all Scott Klusendorf, you know, there's this difference in, in human value between intrinsic and instrumental human value, right? And so pro-lifers ought to believe that human value is intrinsic. It's based on the kind of thing that you are versus what you can do functionally. And a lot of pro-choice people, not all of them, but a lot of them would say that your value is, is an instrumental thing based on different kinds of functions. And when we say it is, it is wrong to have an abortion because you might have killed like, someone who could have composed a great movie score like Hans Zimmer or John Williams or something, you're actually kind of importing that pro-choice worldview that's saying that our value is instrumental. Like, I don't care what this kid would end up doing. This kid could end up just being, you know, hanging out in his parents' basement until he's 40 years old playing Call of Duty. I don't care. I'm glad he wasn't aborted. Like, it is wrong to kill people. Um, so that's the worst one. I think pro-lifers beg the question a lot. 
Um, so like the use of our language, for example, like I totally believe that the unborn's a person. I think it is a baby. It's a child. I am not using the words baby and child early in a conversation because those words imply value, even if you're not actually saying it. And so I'm like very intentionally sometimes in a humorous way using neutral terms like entity if I have to like, and I'll say zygote or fetus. I don't care. But like, I'm trying, I don't want to totally dehumanize. I'm not going to like, let them get away with things like, um, like a parasite or something like that. Like there's things that are too far, but I will use neutral terms to be clear. Like I, I want to be talking about the big philosophical differences and not having a war of language with this person for 10 minutes. Are we calling them pro-choice or pro-abort or like all these different things? Like I don't, I don't care so much. I know it matters a little bit. I don't think it matters as much as a lot of people think it does. And I definitely don't want to beg the question and like import fetal personhood into the language that I'm using. So like, there's things like that, avoiding beard fallacies, like things like that, that I'm just trying to avoid that pro-lifers do some, it was a perfect time to talk about beard fallacies actually with you gentlemen. But like uh, there's, there's things that pro-lifers do sometimes. And I think I don't, they just don't know better. Or it's like, they're not realizing what they're doing. And if they just hear, oh, by the way, if you do the whole pro-life, you know, uh, you know, well, it, Here's a really good example of like a common straw man of pro-choice people. They say it's part of her body. And then, and I've done this. Okay. I've totally been the guy. One of my positive, look at me doing an outreach stories from early in my career was when I, I did this move on like a, he was running for Senate or something or, or, or house or something in Georgia. But I was like, well, wouldn't that mean that in the womb, a baby has two noses and four eyes and half the time is working male genitalia. Like I had that from, you know, I don't know which apologist book, but it's in all of them. And, uh, and like it worked, it's kind of stumped him. But now I'd be like, never say that. That's not what almost any of pro-choice people means when they say it's a part of her body. They're just like being really bad at clarity. So like, what, what do they, they probably mean a bodily autonomy argument. They probably mean it's inside of her body. It's completely dependent on her body. And it, even if it was a person, she should have the right to abort it because otherwise it's this huge government overreads on bodily autonomy. And the whole, you know, four eyes thing doesn't respond to that at all. It strawmans them, but in a subtle way, and they don't know what's happening and they just get mad and leave. So it's, it's things like that I'm trying to help pro-life people to avoid. Love it. And, and Josh, I'd love to follow up with the value of not just being in the laboratory, but being on doing outreach. You, you've mentioned that, that you guys couple both of them practicing and, and trying out your um, ideas that you want to tinker with. And, and is this going to work? I, I say to new volunteers all the time that you can't learn how to change somebody's mind just by reading a book. Yep. You learn how to change somebody's mind by interacting awesome. with dozens, hundreds of people how do you kind of characterize the necessity of not just spending all of your time pouring through all of these great pro-life resources? Don't get me wrong. I, I right. love the, the Case for Life. I love the, the Randy Alcorns, the Stephanie Gray Connors, all of this stuff, the great books. But how there is a difference between an intellectual kind of syllogism and interacting with a real human being who didn't become pro-choice because they read a syllogism that appealed to them. How do you, how do you reconcile that? How do you kind of empower people to get out of the quote unquote laboratory onto a doorstep onto whether it's their, their office lunchroom, whether it's their Thanksgiving table, whatever it may be to actually interact with real people and learn how real people actually process the issue of abortion, I guess. 
that's such a good question. Um, and hopefully we do a good enough job, but it's, it's not weird to think about people who would listen to like either of our podcasts being like, I'm just gonna listen to pro life podcasts and then not do anything. Right. It's like, what do we do about that? Um, I've certainly said multiple times, like if you're only listening to our podcast or watching our YouTube videos or, our, or even if you've gotten our online courses on apologetics or self counseling, like if you're just doing that and then you don't ever actually use it with like a real person, it's a pretty big waste of time. Like, I mean, I've probably only made you more confident about your views. And frankly, that is not my goal. Like, if anything, I might just then be feeding your like, you know, closed minded. I'm like, I'm right about everything, you know, conservatism or blah, blah, blah. Like. I don't, that's not my goal. Like I, I, I want people to, in the end, realize there are better pro-life and pro-choice arguments than they probably know. And in the end, I think the pro-life side wins at the end of the day. Um, but I think what I want to do, like a whole point is to make them feel equipped enough that they're not terrified to go out there because it is terrifying to do your first outreach or your first cyber counseling thing. And so, you know, it's like, I, you know, we don't want it. It's like, we've had to talk about this. Like, so we have an affiliate group program now. It's like, we started it last year where we're like coaching clubs, personally mentoring them and giving them goals. And the goals are always like, you can't just do our course. Like you gotta be like outreach is a very big part of what we're trying to get every club to go out and do. Cause a lot of clubs will just stay and do meetings and do courses or, or, you know, role-playing games, but they won't actually go out and do the scary thing. Or if they do the scary things, they're talking about less controversial things like we're anti-death penalty or we're, we're, you know, vegan or right, whatever. And it's not like we're the hard thing of talking about abortion. And so we're like, now we're real, we're helping get clubs like, okay, let's get out of the, the, the nest and then go and, and actually talk to people and try to have them equipped enough that they can have that, that conversation. So we talk about that a lot. Um, and, and it's like the whole point is like, that is practical enough that they get us so like with the Saba counseling course. It was like, you know, there were other cyber counseling courses out there and at like a, like a, a heart level or like core values level, most of them are pretty similar. Like, I, I don't know of anyone who's, who is selling a online course. It's like, go trespass and go, you know, go yell at people with bullhorns and things like that. Like most of them are like, be nice, be law abiding, like all that. But what I saw lacking, at least at the time when we made our course was like a lot of like practical, like what is your first line? You have 10 seconds from them getting to the door, you know, the car door to the clinic door sometimes. Like, it's hard to know what to say. It's like, here's a bunch of opening lines and here's like some things and here's kind of what you do next. And then here's what you do next. They're trying to be really practical to get people to feel like, and then we got people saying, okay, now I feel like I have enough information to actually go to the clinic and go talk to people. And so I think we just got to keep reminding them like, this isn't just about head knowledge. It's not going to do you any good. Like you've got to actually talk to people. We're not going to win the abortion thing in the end if we're not talking to people and changing people's minds. Yeah, for sure. So let's let's talk about this briefly. And I hope that listeners of our show, if they've listened before, uh, are you know of, of our show or yours, are somewhat aware of how to go out and have this conversation. But maybe give us a, a bit of a a brief crash course on. Okay, I'm at work, I'm in the lunchroom, I'm at school in the classroom, and this, uh, you know, cultured topic comes up and abortion comes up. Yeah. What should my first question be? Like, wh where should I be going? What sort of, uh, you know, point in their worldview should I be probing at? And then how can I sort of share the truth of what abortion is 
and be compassionate at the same time, that I don't feel like I'm just beating them on the head with truth, facts, and logic, uh, all three yeah. of which don't care about their feelings, right. but show that I do, in fact, actually care about their feeling while doing that. So how can we sort of maybe someone's listening to this now thinking, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this uh, just before work and I know the conversation might come up again. Maybe that's not happening, but someone's going to have a conversation about yeah. abortion. Where do we start and how do we sort of navigate our way through like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the most difficult questions I ever get asked. Because like, like we have this like model, like I, I open a lot of my speeches with, I want to help pro-life people to be less weird. And most of the ways to do this at work are weird. Um, and so probably I am trying to figure, and by weird, uh, I mean off-putting, right? I mean, like well-meaning, but off-putting is a common like pro-life uh, combination. And so I, if I were in like a normal office, I would be looking for opportunities. I wouldn't be like, like constantly like, Hey, what did you think about this? And like, like name some story from like a month ago about abortion or something like that. It's like, you don't want to feel super inorganic. Um, this is a great year for it because more people are going to be talking about abortion this year, just like in their normal lives than maybe any year since KCV Planned Parenthood, uh, in, in, in 92. And so this is like a normal, like a lot of people are, are talking about it. And that's the good news. The bad news is pro-choice people are a lot more angry now than they were several years ago. Like before Kavanaugh got on the court, our conversations with pro-choice people were, were able to be more theoretical. If we were like on the college campus, we're not like not talking about like cell counseling or whatever. Like they're not pregnant, but like we're like thinking about the burning building as opposed to they feel like they are trying to get out of a, 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 out of a burning building. And n ever since Kavanaugh and then Barrett and then Trump and January 6th and Texas and now Dobbs, Pro-choice people, generally speaking, are a lot more angry. Um, they're a lot more suspicious, I think, of, of conservatives in general because they're wondering, like, are you a January 6th kind of a conservative? Or are you a, a not that, but kind of a MAGA-type conservative? Are you a never-Trumpy kind of a Like, what, what are you? And can I find any common ground with you? Is there anywhere like, that we can find in common? And so I would be laying a lot of groundwork, like setting up foundations. I would be looking for ways, and we do this a lot. I think it's one of like the main things that I've learned from doing outreach a lot is what we call selfless virtue signaling. So virtue signaling, I think everyone kind of knows what virtue signaling is, and like the common, like the common like Christian example is, you know, sorry, this is often a Christian like teenage girl. It's on Instagram. It's a picture. You've seen it. There's an open Bible. There's a highlighter. There's a coffee cup, and it's just like I just had a wonderful time with God today, kind of thing, and. We know what that is, right? Like, generally speaking, this is like we're trying to signal something about ourselves. And people do this all the time. And we on, at ERI had to spend a lot of time thinking about virtue signaling because, like, wait a minute. Most people are like, kind of like they make fun of virtue signaling, but we totally teach virtue signaling in our course. When we talk about show compassion about the topic of rape before you get into talking about uh, about the value of the child, like, that's virtue signaling. And so we think of selfish versus selfless virtue signaling. And selfish virtue signaling is like you're trying for your own needs. You want them to think well of you. We don't think people should do that. It's bad for your soul. But sometimes you have to signal to someone that you are a virtuous person for them to even take you seriously. And so I have found one of the most effective things to do is any common ground you have with pro-choice people, generally speaking, like politically, maybe even outside the topic of, of abortion, be showing those seeds of common ground. 
you know, and I do this all the time and I'm super intentional about it. Like, what is the first chance I can say to find common ground with animal rights people and be like, man, it is messed up the way that we treat cows and chickens and factory farms. Like, I think that's true. Um, so I'm finding that common ground or, you know, do you think that pot should be legal? Find that common ground. Like whatever those things are, be indicating that you're not what they think you are. Any ways that you are different than the stereotype, you know, the, you know, the Fox News type person, the more likely it is that they're going to give you a shot. And that's not fair. There's a lot of people on Fox News that might have good things to say sometimes. And, but People are what they are. And so I'm looking for those chances like, how can I show them I am different than they think? I'm not a weirdo pro-lifer. I actually care about people. And I don't just believe everything Republicans believe. Like, I'm politically homeless. And I, so I make everyone mad, basically. You know, I, I, don't, I don't belong in any party, basically. And, and talk about those things. And eventually, then they become a lot more interested. So I get approached with people at, at outreach, eventually, like, asking me. They want to, they're actually asking me for my opinions about abortion because I've, made myself intriguing to them because I just seem like such a weird anomaly. And they're like, what's going on with this guy? Like kind of thing. Like, I think you can do that in your actual life too. Um, I'd be looking for on people's Facebook, like if they're posting, you know, some pro-choice message or something, um, that's an opportunity. I'm not going to get into a debate with them in the comments with a bunch of other pro-lifers probably using, you know, blacious reasoning or being a jerk or whatever, but I'm going to be like one-on-one. Like, can I get one-on-one with them? Can I get them to coffee or whatever? And, and start having that, that conversation. Love it. And, and I want to dive more into, so you talked a lot about common ground. We talk about common ground all the time and, and this, the importance of making a meaningful connection with the person you're talking to. And I remember year over year, we have these interns come in, these great university college kids that come in, um, they get the training, they go out, they have their conversations and they're just like, absolutely crescent fallen when they come back and they say, you know, this person not along the whole time and they gave me a big handshake, but they walked away pro-choice and I did nothing. I yeah. accomplished nothing. Yeah. And yep. this mentality that if I don't convince them within the span of a five, 10, 15 minute conversation that the preborn is a living member of the human family that deserves human rights from the moment of fertilization, then I've wasted my time. Yep. The number of times I'd be like, no, you have opened the door for a future interaction. You have broken down the stereotype exactly. of pro-lifers. And, yeah. and I want, rather than me talking about this, you are the expert on this. Go nuts on how do you- You said it really well. The value you said of it report. really well. Yeah, no, I, I, I is, is that is so much of what you're doing is, is that whole, like, you know, it is, it feels like a cliche when you're a pro-life apologist, but as Greg Kokel says, is you're leaving a pebble in their shoe, right? That they're going to like mm. hobble away on later. Like, I, I don't know what to think about that and showing them that you are kind and thoughtful. I can have a whole conversation with someone and not make one pro-life argument and have it be a huge win for the chances of them to talk to me and or other pro-lifers more later but for sure like so when i do my relational apologetic speech i i, t I if i have time i end with some practical tips because there's something specifically difficult about being friends with people who are different from you it is easy to be friends with other like white middle-class catholic conservatives or whatever like be friends with someone like very different from you and see that's there's challenges that come with that and the last tip that i always give is to become comfortable with allowing people to remain unconvinced. Um, and I think I learned some of this from a friend of mine named, named Jonathan Fincher, um, who was doing Christian apologetics and, and talked about, about, about the, this, this kind of like relational apologetics um, in, in her talks. It was like, so she described people changing their minds often the way water slowly changes the contour of a rock. 
And like a lot of people change their mind that way. Like they change their mind over a course of years, not one amazing moment with some apologists, you know, stud on their campus or whatever, right? And so, oh my sister, that's so obnoxious. It's like some like rock star, right? The kind of people are like, oh man, if you talk to Stephanie Gray Connors or Josh Brom or whatever, like it's gonna be amazing. Like a lot of people, they just need a lot more than that. They need to actually, they need to be talking more with a friend of theirs that they take seriously and trust. Um, and so you we've got to get to that point where we understand, like, look, and a lot of times just like think about yourself. If you sat down with Sam Harris. It's like one of my favorite atheists to listen to. I listen to his podcast a lot. It's like part of my like anti-confirmation bias routine is listening to people like Sam Harris who are not just idiots. I think he's wrong sometimes, but it, when he's wrong, he's wrong for like smart reasons and not stupid reasons usually. And um, and, and pr pretty much anyone, any Christian would sit down with Sam Harris and he would probably kill them in a debate. Like they're not ready. Does that mean that they would become an atheist that day? No, like they're going to go, they're going to talk to like their pastor or their priest or look up apologists like William Lane Craig or, or whoever and like try to figure out what are what are Christians saying about that or, or Catholics saying about that. And, and maybe at some point they change their mind. Maybe at some point they become an atheist because they're convinced that that is the view that makes the most sense. But it's not going to happen in a day. And that's my point. It's not going to happen with pro-choice people in a day. This is such an emotionally complicated topic, not to mention philosophically complicated. Like we have tricked, <sighs> tricked is the wrong word. We have, an, I think, convinced pro-life people wrongly that abortion is a super simple issue. It's all just about, like, is the unborn a, a, a person or not? Is it a human or not? And unfortunately, the bodily autonomy thing makes it a lot more complicated. Uh, it is more difficult than just one question. There's at least two really important questions here, and one of them is really complicated. And it's like you can't, it's hard to prove philosophical concepts to people. You can prove scientific concepts to people, but it's hard to prove at some point, sometimes you just end up in a war of, of intuitions. And so we're using thought experiments and we're like, we're trying, but like some people just like, there's that, not to mention if they've had an abortion in the past or have, or have participated in an abortion or, or have their best friend had an abortion or whatever. Like those two things just make this so complicated. It makes so much sense to me that I have pro-choice friends that didn't become pro-life for two to five years of friendship. Like that makes sense to me. And we've got to kind of, help normalize that for the rest of the pro-life movement. This is going to be, we're going to change minds on a single basis, but hopefully times millions if we can convince enough pro-life people and equip them to do it versus we just need one silver bullet. There is no pro-life silver bullet. It's going to be a combination of a lot of different things. Let's go. Yeah, that silver bullet. I mean, we wish we had it. Um, <laughs> Me too. It's, it's just not there. <laughs> Um, so you talked about, you know, some of your pro-choice friends taking two to five years. Um, could you share with us perhaps some of the memorable experiences that you have um, with Equal Rights Institute of people changing their minds, whether it be friends, whether it be people that you met on university campuses as you were trying to navigate your way through some of the new arguments that you were working with. Um, could you share with us some of Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so like... Uh, there's this thing that happened, and this was a little bit pre-ERI. It still goes on because we're still using the same argument. I think we, we, we make it better than we used to, but we, we use this thing that we kind of discovered with Steve Wagner at JFA that we call the equal rights argument. Um, and so, you know, the way that we're, we're arguing for person is kind of this, this, you know, we're kind of go around the walls they often have up, and we're focusing them on equality. We're focusing them on this common ground. Um, and talking about why not fetuses should be equal. Like, let's talk about like the obvious cases of human adults 
and why are they equal? What, what, how do we make sense of that given that there's a lot of differences, right? Like the three of us look a lot the same. If people look at us, we've got the you know, same beards, the same microphones, like all that. But there's a lot of differences. Like reading your bios this morning, I'm like, oh yeah, there's some differences. I'm not outdoorsy at all. I, I, I would hate fishing. Um, but then there's some common ground. I love bacon. I was on like, I think Peter's bio, like he loves bacon. There's something on Cam's bio that's like, yeah. So there's like some commonalities, but maybe some of us are more musical than others. And, you know, and you guys can climb mountains or whatever. Like there's just differences. And so like, how do we think about that and, and end up with this, this idea of equality? And in the end, we walk them through a process that shows them that their explanations for equality don't make as much sense as ours. Because there's, they're either going to have a squirrel problem with their view would let squirrels be persons, or they're going to have a newborn problem where they're kicking newborns out. And we just walk that through them with sentience, self-awareness, and viability, and ability to feel pain, and like all the different things that they might want to throw out. And then we can demonstrate we've got a better answer that like something like human nature makes more sense than like all of these pro-choice views. So at the end of the day, like even before we started year right, like once we were doing that across the country with JFA, our, our, our like, you know, I assume you guys do this too after an outreach. I like gave like a debrief session, like afterward, like you guys all sit somewhere and talk, yeah, and share stories. Yeah. So it became like the same thing every time. Like I saw someone become pro-life today. Oh, cool. What happened? I used the equal rights argument. Oh, okay. It's like every single time. Like I was like, you know, you know, almost every time someone became pro-life. It was because of that argument is part of why we started ERIs. Like, we got to teach the movement this argument. This is really, really important. So that, like, th that's happened a bunch of times. But then, like, it's certainly outside of outreach. You know, Deanna, uh, my, my friend Deanna is the one that sticks out the most to me, where she started out as a you know, really smart pro-choice blogger. She ran, at the time, a really clever pro-choice blog. Um, and she connected with me through YouTube back when YouTube had a private messaging system that was super flaky and buggy, but they, like back before they shut that down, she messaged me because she saw us talk about bodily autonomy in a kind of a different way. And we started this friendship and she's like, she's like, I'm a pro-choice atheist lesbian in Canada. And I'm just like, you know, and like my joke on stage is like, you wouldn't think we'd have a whole lot in, com in common being that she was from Canada. Ha 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 ha. Okay. So. Well, we had a lot in common. We started a real friendship and, and went from uh, like 160 or something emails to Skype sessions. It was before Zoom was the thing. It was before COVID. And, you know, so like we're Skyping for like a couple of hours at a time. And it was very relational and very much like friends talking and sometimes talking about abortion. And, and ultimately, CBC uh, began self-identifying as pro-life like a year and a half later went to the Canada March for Life wearing a pro-life shirt that she made with functionally the equal rights argument like written on it with a sharpie and then like posted it publicly and came out of the closet for the second time in her life that day. Um, and so like, it, like that is someone that I think of that I poured, I don't know how many hundreds of hours into that friendship, not just because I was hoping to like have a notch on my pro-life belt or something, just because I really care about this person. I um, still care. We still talk uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, just, I just care about them. And I just think that's what a lot of times persuasion is going to look like. And that's something that I'd love to touch on in just a moment about the, the, the transition that we need to make in the pro-life movement that we, and, and I'd be interested, let's dive into it right now, actually, rather than, yeah. than kicking this down the field, let's dive into it right now. I, I'm interested in your take on, 
I firmly believe that the step that the pro-life movement needs to take from where we are now to actually transforming society is that we need to stop having random people like the three of us show up at somebody's doorstep and try to change somebody's mind. And we need to start having brothers, sisters, coworkers, best friends, spouses, siblings, changing each other's minds because the credibility that I bring to a doorstep when somebody opens the door and they don't know anything about me versus even the credibility that I have with my siblings. Yes, that can be a much more awkward conversation because as soon as that door closes, I don't have to worry about that person ever seeing me again, possibly. Um, What is your take on, obviously pro-life outreach is necessary right now. What is your take on the mobilization of the masses, not for the stranger, but for their sphere of influence, the people that they actually bear some degree of authority, some degree of credibility already with? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the the, on, the only way that I talked about that a little bit differently, just like to add a little bit of, of potential nuance to it is, is unfortunately, is also like on a spectrum. Sometimes it can be too closely related to someone for it to work. So like family is a tricky thing. I wrote a couple of articles a few years ago that we like we tweet out every Thanksgiving um, that was like in preparation for Thanksgiving. Like, like, how do you be a pro-lifer at Thanksgiving kind of thing? Um, and, and, I, and I'm not the guy that is like, Find your in, you know. Let's make sure we're talking about abortion while eating turkey, like uh, because I think that's pretty weird and uncomfortable for almost everyone there, and it's really off-putting. And if anything, it drives them typically further from the pro-life view. But there's also like you might have your, you know, rabidly pro-choice aunt like like pestering you with this. Like you've got to be ready for that. But like the tricky thing is sometimes I think power dynamics can play a role there. So if you've got your super pro-choice aunt or your grandmother or something like that. And you are also in a family where like the, like the culture, like every family is different, but like if the culture is kind of like, you never really become an adult or like a peer, no matter what your age is, no matter you've been a scholar, no matter how many kids you have now, like if you never end up like a peer with, you know, the older people in your family, you're probably not going to change their mind because it's like, they just like, they just like, they, they see you as a kid, they always a kid. And so sometimes that won't work. And then like in those cases, I'm like, I am praying that God puts someone else in their life that will be more, you know, strategically positioned, like more able to change their mind than I can. But generally speaking, like basically you're exactly right. It's like the best friends for sure. Um, We've got to get people talking, able to talk about this in their sphere of influence in a way that won't be off-putting and won't mean they're likely to like lose this friendship. And I think there are ways to do that. but I don't think most pro-lifers are, are there yet. And so then there's this kind of huge need. But I mean, for sure, you know, when we do outreaches, you know, our outreaches, and this might be a little bit different than with CCBR, which I think is fine, but like our outreaches aren't primarily about the people we talk to. It's about what we can learn from the people that we talk to that then we can spread out to as many pro-lifers as we can. Like we're training pro-lifers. Like obviously we want pro-choice people to change their minds when we talk to them. That's a way better story, you know, or whatever. It's way more fulfilling than like, I mean, my last outreach was uh, two outreach experiences were terrible. You know, my, my first outreach experiences since like COVID and everything is like, it was, I don't know, what, three or four months ago or whatever. Um, they were, they were pretty hostile. And I'm either talking to dealing with people who are like protesting, like they feel like I'm making their entire campus unsafe because the Supreme Court's now considering this thing. Or I'm dealing with like the hardcore utilitarians that are like, I talked to this one guy who is literally defending parents should have the right 
to kill their kids until they are 17 years old. And the only reason he drew the line at 17 is because that dude's 18. And he's just like, admittedly, like, yep, I'm totally ad hoc and just like fine with it. And I'm just like, what do you do with that guy? So like, and I was talking to those people, like the the utilitarians who will bite every bullet like all day. That's not a great experience. But it's like, I'm just trying to pay attention to what am I doing? Have I come up with some like idea in the moment that might be useful? Like a lot of times when we're trying to like, who who do we want on the team at ERI? It's just people who are really good at like improvisation and like thinking outside the box and trying something we've never tried. And sometimes we do that and it fails miserably, right? But like sometimes we stumble upon something that works amazing. It's like, okay, let's talk about that or that thing that we are learning from those from those conversations. Love it. I, I've got like a million more questions I'd love to, to ask you. We're going to have to do another episode at some point. Absolutely. Here. Yeah, this has been yeah. really fun. Love it. The last one I want to throw your way in, and this might be another 20-minute um, discussion. I have no idea. But um, you, you've mentioned a few times how important this year is going to be and the hostility that is coming and how people are angrier because... I don't know if you would say that it's in some ways because the pro-abortion movement feels like their back is up against a wall and they feel like they're an animal that's getting trapped sort of thing, that, that they are desperate right now. And I'm curious well if if that's true, why is relationships even more important in face of desperation? Why is it so much more important to not go out with your bludgeon this year more than any year? Why is this the year to go out with your empathy, to go out with your relationships, rather than just your sort of truth that you're going to smack people over the head with? You are so good at asking questions. That that, that combination <laughs> yeah. of two things is that that's so important for people to be thinking about, Cam. Um, so it's important because, so like typically when we talk to people, and you know this as well as I do, uh, we're talking to people who often have walls already up. It's not just a matter of like, let's avoid having walls go up. It's like they've got walls already up, um, right? Like the, like the more you talk to people, the more you realize like a lot of human beings are amazing. Like we have, there's this amazing human ability to believe what it wants to believe. And so there's a lot of like self-justification that has been going on something for years before I get to a person. And they've said whatever they've had to say to themselves, right? It's not a person. It's not a person. It's not a person. Bodily rights. Bodily rights. Bodily rights. Pro-lifers are mean. Pro-lifers are mean. Pro-lifers are mean. Like, whatever they've had to say to be like, because this is an important part of, like, their lifestyle or keeping their lifestyle going at, at the end of the day. And so that's really hard. It's just like all of our stuff. like, how do we get those defenses down? All of our dialogue tips, sometimes the way that we create arguments, they're all about getting around the walls that are already there. How do we make them feel like they're, even if it's a stranger at outreach? How do we make them feel as quickly as possible like they're hanging out at Starbucks with a friend? And that is like the like the importance of being good at that or effective at that goes up the more emotional they are, right? So we've all had every once in a while that great conversation with the, the pro-choice philosopher type who is like, I'm willing to kind of like do this at a theoretical level and try to remove as much emotion as possible. And like, let's just have that, like, let's just work through the thought experiments and see whose intuitions make the most sense. And that's like, we can really quickly get to like the core issues with those people, right? Okay, well, that is the opposite from someone who, you know, had an abortion last week, right? And it's like, I'm I'm not going to use probably hardly any philosophy in that conversation. I'm just going to like show that I care about this person, that I don't have fetus tunnel vision, that like I want them to be okay, I want them to heal and, and like, and help them see that our pro-lifer is like that. And so I just think this year, as pro-choice people are reckoning with the idea that 
The smart betting money right now is that Roe versus Wade and Casey are getting overturned in a matter of months. I can't even believe I'm saying that out loud. Like, I've been so wrong in my predictions of how this is going to go. I did not think this would be happening that soon. And maybe it still won't. But I currently think that's the best betting money, which means that I've been wrong about my predictions about the Supreme Court. And okay, I'll I'll own that. Um, But that just means, like, that is terrifying for pro-choice people who have bought into the, like, myths of what that's going to mean. The people who actually think that means that there are going to be thousands of women dying like every day in back alleys. Like what are like what decade is this? Like that you think that women are going to back alleys to people with coat hangers like that was, I think, not even happening that often before Roe. It's certainly not going to be happening post Roe. They're going to be getting abortion pills in the mail like the FDA has already approved for abortion pills. To be shipped to people, which is like, that's a really big deal. The pro-life movement has been like, pro-life leaders have been thinking about that problem privately for at least a couple of years now. And I haven't known of anyone who's actually had a solution. This has been like, yeah, we all agree. It's a really big problem. Like, how do you sidewalk counsel at that point? You know, you can't, you you can't. So that's a huge problem. So I do think, I'm not saying abortion, illegal abortions will all be safe. I'm not saying it's not going to be dangerous. I think RU46 is inherently a bit dangerous. Um, because of the kinds of, you know, it can can just cause amazing amounts of of blood loss. Um, And that is a scary thing about, about, uh, about, you know, the the prevalence of of medical abortions. But like the people that think that like the abortion rate won't go down at all after abortion becomes illegal, like they literally think the only thing we're doing is we're adding dead bodies. We're adding however however many women are going to die in illegal abortions, as opposed to the idea that like a lot of women are going to choose not to have abortions. And are even going to change their entire lifestyle uh, as a result if abortion is not legal in their state or they can't get to the next state or like whatever is going to happen at the state level. Um, people are freaking out. And you said exactly right. They're like an animal. They're being back into a cage. They're furious. They feel like this is the patriarchy. They feel, they, and, and they connect out like Donald Trump to the idea of abortion becoming illegal, which is not a strategic win for the pro-life movement. I'm sorry. Uh, and so it is. It's going to be tough, and the more relational you can be, the more likely you're going to be able to slowly get, you know, over those obstacles. So, like, we see apologetics as, like, there's, like, hurdles. Like, think of, like, hurdles, like, the people literally, like, jump over in, in, a, in a race, right? Like, on a, on, a, on a track. And, like, apologetics is just removing the hurdles. All we're doing is, like, hey, they've got, like, they bring up back alley abortions. I'm really glad you brought that up. Let's take care of that. Oh, like, well, what about bodily autonomy? Oh, I'm really, that's a really important part of this. I'm glad you, let's talk about that for a, a month. And then we can like take, take care of that. And then eventually, hopefully the result is that they want to be pro-life, that they find being pro-life actually attractive, that they want to be like you, as opposed to, I want to be as different from you as possible because you are really off-putting to me. And it's going to be really hard this year. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but it's going to be really hard, but the, on the, Good news of that is, I think there's a lot that we can do, but I think pro-life, pro-life people that have been a bit, um, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with a more charitable word. So something like lazy up until now on like the equipping themselves thing, it, it's, it's go time now. And, 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 and like the, the thing that's stuck in my head, the analogy, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap with this. I know it's been a long answer, but um, I just rewatched Band of Brothers recently. Um, I know some people watch Band of Brothers like every single year. I just learned that's a thing. But like HBO did a podcast about it 
And I'm a sucker for that. Anytime HBO makes a podcast about one of their things, I am now going to rewatch that thing. And Chernobyl is like the best thing that's ever been made. And their podcast was amazing for it. So they just did a Band of Brothers podcast. It was fantastic. And I rewatched it and kind of re-realized. I think it's like my third time seeing it. And it's such an amazing show. But like, thankful, like that helped me think. Okay, so think of like a lot of pro-lifers have thought of like, you know, reading, you know, Stephanie Gray Connor's book or doing our, our courses or whatever is like, this kind of like boot camp. But boot camp doesn't feel really important when you're at peacetime. Okay, we're not at peacetime anymore, guys. This is you're you're at, you know, Camp Curahi, and you're gonna be parachuting into D-Day in less than two years. Like the training feels more urgent, more important. There's a reason to be climbing up that dang mountain a couple of times a day, because as hard as that boot camp was for those poor guys. Uh, it got worse, you know, it got worse when they were actually overseas. And so it's like, this is the time guys, are you going, like, do you want to do well? Um, when we're talking to people, like there's a lot of big mistakes. There's like landmines to avoid and we can all help you to avoid those. And you're going to be a lot more likely to actually see them become pro-life as a result of those conversations, no matter like however long that is. And so it's time to take this seriously. It's Band of Brothers time. D-Day is coming. We're at Camp Curahee. Run up that mountain. Like, let's go. Get trained up. Get as trained up as you can. God, and, and to quote Greg Kokel twice now in this podcast, and I think he's quoting someone else, but I have no idea who he's quoting. But, you know, he would talk about the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. Is That's the idea for this for 2022 for pro-lifers. Awesome, Josh. That's a great call to be equipped with good apologetics and the tools you need to change people's minds on the topic of abortion and to have those effective and winsome conversations. Josh, where can we learn more about you? Your website, you're, you, you're a speaker, you're a podcaster. Where do you want to direct people to learn more about the work that you do? Yeah, thanks. I mean, everyone can find pretty much everything on equalrightsinstitute.com. Uh, equal and I know institute is not the easiest thing to type. It took me like a month of starting this before I could get that really fast. There's a lot of T's involved, uh, but we have, yeah, we have a podcast. We have a YouTube channel. We have two courses. We have an affiliate group program. If you want us to be helping you uh, set like outreach goals uh, for your, for, for your clubs. Um, I, but if we're also like, I can't afford on an, a $50 online course, we have a blog with, I don't know, something like 200 articles now on it. There's a lot of good stuff there and just learn with us. We're just, we're still trying to figure this out too. Uh, and, um, I've, we've got some really exciting things coming uh, for later this year. And so I just encourage people to follow uh, us along with the other pro-life people that they find to be really helpful to them at actually doing stuff. Hopefully, uh, like listening to the Pro-Life Guys podcast and us will actually help you to have those real conversations with, with real people. You can find all of that stuff on our site at EqualRightsInstitute.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast. We had a great time. This was so fun. We have to do this again. This was a real, real good time. I feel like I'm just hanging out with, with, with brothers in arms here. I love it. Let's talk again. Perfect. That is Josh Brom from the Equal Rights Institute. If you want to learn more about ERI and the podcast and the YouTube channel and some of the other projects that they have on the go, the training sessions and more, you can find the link in the show notes. So the link that, that Josh shared, equalrightsinstitute.com. You can go to the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening to it. Click it and learn more about them there. Cam, any any final thoughts as we wrap up this show? An absolute blast with Josh. And if you want to hear more from Josh, as mentioned, as I mentioned off the top, join us 
through our Patreon team for our quarterly roundtable coming up Friday, January 28th. Um, it's going to be in the evening. We're, we're still hammering out the exact dates for it. But if you want to be a part of that, if you want to be able to ask Josh particular questions about the work that he's doing with the RI, um, if you want to talk to myself or Peter or Mark Harrington, who we haven't featured on the show, but he's a champ. Um, We've had um, his colleague, um, Seth, come on the show a long, long time ago, um, but Created Equal is a fantastic organization in the States as well. If you want to be a part of that, sign up for our Patreon team at patreon.com slash prolifeguys. Um, there's a ton of sweet perks that um, your financial partnership allows us to grow the show. Um, what that means is allows us to travel um, on speaking tours, allows us to produce this content, allows us to have sweet guests on. Um, that have a fun time with us, which is super cool, and ultimately give you um, the content that you need to be a better pro-life apologist, which is our entire goal here. And so sign up again, um, patreon.com slash guys. You can find it through our website as well, prolifeguys.com. Um, Josh is super cool. He will be featured on the show again at some point here, without a doubt, because it was an absolute blast chatting with him. Um, and at the end of the day, like he said, um, if if these conversation skills don't go beyond your earbuds, they're not serving the culture very much. And so please, please, please apply these conversation tools to the conversations you're having, whether they're friends and family, whether they're random people in your community. Uh, we desperately need more people who have the courage and the empathy and the grace to go forth and to have conversations with people around them to change minds, save lives and transform our culture. Love it. Thank you so much to everyone who has stuck with us through this episode. Thank you so much for uh, liking, subscribing, sharing this content with your friends. If you want to reach out to us for any reason, if you have questions, concerns, comments, thoughts, whatever they might be, uh, tips for the future, um, we love hearing from you. You can reach out to us on our website, prolifeguys.com. That's prolifeguys.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and, uh, and reach out to us there. Thank you again. We hope you tune in again next time.